Fredology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to this week's episode of Fraudology. I am glad you're here. The last several weeks, we've had some really awesome interviews. And if you haven't taken a chance to listen to Frank McKenna talking about Frank on Fraud and his blog that's really taken off, as well as Monica Sharp, who spent 30 years at Apple and just had the best front row seat to see their development growth and be able to be a real integral part of their fraud strategy. I highly recommend going back and listening to those as well as all the others. I mean, all of them, you know, it's like trying to pick my favorite child. <laughs> but this week is no exception for great interviews. And I wanted to just give a tiny bit of background before diving into the interview. So if you've been listening to Fraudology for a while, you probably caught episode 16 back in January with Matt Vega, who was previously in military intelligence on their counter fraud side. And when he left the military, he started in e-commerce or went into e kind of back to e-commerce, actually, if you listened to his career path. But he went into e-commerce for SOR Technologies, which is a travel company. And then at the time of the interview for Fraudology, he was ending one position and starting another. And there was about a week or two of overlap between the time that he was senior manager of fraud strategy for Instacart. And then he now is the director of fraud strategy for BlueSnap, which is a payment processor all over the world and enables payments all over the world. And Matt and I developed a friendship prior to the podcast as well as currently. And after really kind of learning how fun it is to do a podcast, he decided to, or he reached out to his friend, Will, Will Megson, who is also in fraud prevention, but on a different, in a different area. Will has been on the product side at Groupon, and then he was senior product manager at Lyft around some really exciting identity and fraud prevention and trust and safety projects. And Will has now founded a new technology company slash, you know, vendor in quotation marks, Bouncer. And so they started this podcast called the Fraud Technology Podcast, and I really love it. I mean, I know probably some people are like, oh, competition. But no, I mean, I think that there is more than enough room and space for more than one conversation happening because we all have different perspectives. So they launched the Fraud Technology Podcast about a month and a half ago, and they so graciously had me on their podcast and it was so much fun. And I said, well, let's do a swap. Let's have you on my podcast. And so this is the interview of Will and Matt, and they're coming from two different backgrounds. And then I come in from my third background 
And we're just essentially nerding out or geeking out, depending on which phrase you prefer, about fraud. But we touch on so many different topics that I think you guys will find it really fascinating and interesting to hear it from three different perspectives who have all been on the merchant side and who now, for lack of a better term, are, are you know more in supporting roles for merchants. I don't really consider myself a vendor, though. I mean, I am a consultant, so I guess some people would put me in that box. And though Matt is more operationally in fraud for Blue Snap, he's not a merchant anymore either. So we bring those different perspectives. And I think it was just, I mean, honestly, all three of us had so much fun. We were texting afterwards about doing this more regularly. So I would love your feedback on that if you loved this conversation even half as much as we did. But with all of that said, I am really looking forward to you hearing us just kind of, you know, this is similar to some of the conversations I have with fraud friends, you know, not recorded. So looking forward to you guys listening in and to hearing what you think. So with that, I'll let you listen in on my conversation with Matt Vega and Will Megson from the Fraud Technology Podcast. And I will talk to you again next week. Well, I am so happy to have the shoe on the other foot. Welcome, Matt and Will. I've had so much fun being on your podcast, the Fraud Technology Podcast, and I'm so happy that you are now on mine. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Chris. Excited Excited to be here. I am so happy to have you guys. We'll dive into more about your backgrounds pretty soon, but I just to start off, and the way I wrote this question was intentional. So other than being like me, and that's mostly directed to Matt, why did you guys decide to start the Fraud Technology Podcast? Yeah, definitely. The timing was good because you had me on your podcast. I give you all the credit in the world there. (laughs) I think there's such a need right now for collaboration within Mm -hmm. the industry. And it's something that you and I have been speaking about for a long time now. And it's uh, something that is continuously bothersome for me because the fraud networks are collaborating very closely against Mm -hmm. us and except us on our side and our, and the merchants are, they treat it like it's an NSA compound and they can't share any information. (laughs) And it's just ridiculous. Will and I have been friends for a while and I'm obviously a big fan of, of what he does. And I called him up one day and was like, Hey, we need to be collaborating more. We need to be passing out information. And, Sure enough, the conversation went down this rabbit hole of a podcast. And he's like, I've been thinking about it. He's like, that's literally say, it was, on yeah, my list. Like, Matt, you literally read my mind. We had not coordinated before that phone call. And I was no. like, I was about to call you to say the exact same thing. So yeah. And we just started spitballing and we went down this rabbit hole and we both had the same kind of idea on the hit it from a technology standpoint mm-hmm. and start like sharing best practices. And uh, yeah, that's what it let us down. It, But I think your podcast, at least for me personally, Will already had it, but For me personally, it gave me just that little extra push over the edge where I was like, we really need to just put more information out. You're like, if Carice can do it, I mean. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. no. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's you. I'm totally kidding. (laughs) Yeah, but you kind of lead the way in the industry with transparency and collaboration. And that's where I feel like as a friend and ally of yours, I need to help push that along. And because I think that you can't do it alone. And that's exactly why we had you on our podcast. And and you're now having us on our podcast. It's about what we're all here to solve a huge problem that isn't going to be solved unless we're talking. 100%. And I love the fact that you guys just focus on technology and have enjoyed the episode so far. And I think there is definitely room for more conversations around online fraud. I mean, there's not enough content and information out there. And I've been such a proponent for collaboration and education for so long. And there are pockets of merchants that work together. And I'm very grateful that I'm able to facilitate a lot of those. But 
there certainly is, I mean, it's not like you need a secret handshake or anything, but I don't have a lot of time to be going out to people and being like, hey, come in. And yeah, I think all the conversations being had are important. And like you said, I mean, even just like companies shouldn't be competitive with each other, they should be competitive against fraudsters. I think those of us that are passionate about education and collaboration like the three of us should not be competition. I mean, I don't think any of us have or are planning on getting rich off of our podcast. We're literally doing this for passion (laughs) and out of love for the space and talking about this stuff. Yeah, there's no competition here. And Will, I'm curious to hear from you as far as what made you have the idea of the podcast too. Yeah, so I think that ever since... I was on the buyer side at Lyft as the fraud kind of product manager. Mm-hmm. I just remember feeling like so much of fraud was not intuitive at first. And a lot of the resources online were either not available at all or very opaque or too way too simplistic and not that helpful. Or and only so, from vendors that are very much like, oh, yeah, exactly. marketing materials. our solution is the only one. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and what I really think I needed were more things like frameworks for how to think about the problem or how to reason about different choices or these other types of strategic things. And I just remember feeling a little helpless. And when I first started getting going in the fraud technology area and not knowing where to go and and where to learn. And I just always remember in the back of my mind, man, if I ever get the cycles or the momentum or whatever, find a way to do it, it'd be great to try to open that world up a little bit and think about ways that different merchants can collaborate, even vendors can collaborate. I'm on the vendor side now. So I always try to think of as a vendor, how can I be better in terms of Providing information, not mm-hmm. always not providing marketing or things that are less helpful. So I think, yeah, Matt gave me the call. It was like great minds thinking alike. And just we were thinking about it for different reasons, but arrived at the same conclusion. Totally. That's how it's meant to be. Yeah, and absolutely. To it's me, worked out great. Yeah. I mean, you are what, five or six episodes in. Yep. And I know I learned a lot of lessons as I was starting my first podcast and I continue to learn lessons either from guests or about podcasting or about a topic. So far, what's been the biggest lesson you've learned since beginning Fraud Tech Podcast? My gut feeling is Will and I have a completely different opinion here. <laughs> and, and so I have Which one that... Which is why I, I asked the same question to, to both Totally. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. You go first, Matt. Yeah, yeah. Mine is actually unique in the fact that it's not necessarily about the podcast. It's something that Carissa and I have talked about, but I didn't actually really understand it until I was on this side on broadcasting out the information. And it's the concept of dancing around (laughs) how to fix a problem without giving out the solution Mm -hmm. is very challenging, right? So there's a lot of things that we hold back because we don't want the other side of the spectrum to learn exactly how we're going after them or how we're stopping an attack or what tricks we're using to snag them in the nets. And so (laughs) it's very interesting because you want to give that information out to all of our fellow brothers and sisters in the industry. But at the same time, you don't want to give it out to the other side. So you try to dance around it a little bit and get out the right information without diving too deep into the woods. And that is actually a very interesting problem. It's somewhat fun because you think about other ways to answer a question. But yeah, that's really one of the big lessons that I've learned is how to effectively get out the most amount of information as possible about a company or about a technology without giving out the secret sauce. Yeah, I think think it's strategic, right? I mean, it's more talking about it from like a 10,000 foot view and strategy and not giving out the tactical pieces that can be used to counter. Yeah, exactly. It it would basically be counterintuitive. And I definitely have 
I think I've learned that dance over the last, I mean, I've been podcasting for almost three years now. And also in speaking at conferences and like working with merchants and stuff, like I've learned, okay, when I'm public, I'm not going to say a specific vendor name. So I'm going to dance around that a little bit and just talk about the technology piece because I don't want to speak badly or good about one or the other, but being able to get enough information out. So I can totally relate to that. And that's an interesting one. How about I have uh, before Will answers, because there's one you just brought up something. No, I, I don't mean to take Will's question here. But I definitely want to hear it because I actually have never asked him this question. But no, one thing that you just brought up is one of the other interesting problems is I have friends on just about every company, including every competing company. And so it's very interesting because the friend in me wants to help them. But there could be a potential upcoming company that I think it'll be episode 12 or 13 that is where it's lined up where there's no way in hell I would recommend the company, but I would recommend the people. So it's a very Mm -hmm. interesting thing. I've worked with many companies where I'd like, I would hire this guy in a second. There's no way I'm going to integrate this company. <laughs> it's it's right. kind of interesting yeah. when you're talking about a technology and you're like, man, this is, I, you want to support the people, but maybe not support the, luckily we haven't had that problem yet, but it's coming down the pipe. So I can already feel it. But yeah, we're very lucky that everyone that we've talked to is like their friends. We've had some awesome people on the podcast. We had a blast with the guys at Frogster over in Germany that just because they're, they're completely different culture and yeah. they don't really operate currently unofficially in the United States. So mm. it was fun because it allowed us to openly talk about things and it really didn't impact anything that we were doing here in the U.S. So it was mm. completely like in a different world. Yeah. So it, it was fun. during COVID. It does. Totally. Like it's a different yeah, yeah. world. <laughs> totally. Totally. I don't I think it's going to last, but yeah. Right. I can't wait for that episode, Matt. That sounds like it'll be an interesting one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, that'll be fun. Talk about um, dancing. You're going to get your dancing. Uh, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, to your question for me, I think the thing that struck me, and we're only six or seven episodes in, which I guess is a, is a fair amount, but it's almost like how small the world is in a way, despite the different verticals, people and <laughs> vendors, people as on the merchant side. Or on the payment side, people working heavy in machine learning versus more rules-based stuff. And the problems you just see again and again. So like one example is that I've heard a theme on almost every episode, I think of just how do you price risk within an organization and how do you frame that to an executive team to get a purchase or as a vendor when you're trying to sell your stuff and you're so much of the value is like preventing a thing that hasn't happened yet. Mm. It's this sort of fundamental problem that I just hear a lot of people struggling with. And it doesn't matter what vertical you're in, an e-commerce or marketplace or anything like that. And it almost doesn't matter what part of the side of whether you're on the vendor side or the merchant side or the payment side. It's just a really hard business problem to price risk appropriately and figure out what to do about that. And so it's one example, but I feel like there's maybe a thread of two or three or so that Mm -hmm. remind me of just like, within the risk fraud space, how small the world is. And I think a lot of people are dealing with the same problem, even if they're on different sides of the oh, yeah. solution, buyer, seller, or a great point. within different verticals and things like that. So that's the thing that's really stuck out to me. Yeah, I think there's a definite need. And this is something that I'm always trying to problem solve these huge problems that I can't fix alone. But I do think that there is a need for almost a rebranding of risk globally over e-com because for some reason, cybersecurity is completely accepted for spend, but yet the monetization of compromised information is, oh, you're going to touch our sales. Oh, you're going to touch our growth. And I think there's a real need for rebranding as well as socializing this at much higher than at the fraud level with executives to understand it's not just a monetary issue. 
it's a brand issue, it's a customer experience issue, et cetera. And by the way, maybe the last time you were in a company where fraud was addressed, it was a sales prevention mechanism, but now it can actually be sales enablement and here's how. And I don't think merchants internally or vendors externally going in are doing their best. I think they're doing their best for themselves, but I think that there's room for growth and myself included. I don't know. Would you agree with that too, you guys? Yeah. One of the interesting things that I've seen is like, there's sort of two ways to think about that problem of how hard it is to talk about risk and budgeting it for it and all that sort of stuff. One is to like get better at understanding the impact and just get smarter about that conversation. And the other is that I'm seeing too, is change the subject in a way. And you see that with these insurance products. Like we were talking to the folks over at Riskify, they were big into that. Or have it be more about growth and conversion. And that's the what you lead with. And you can mm-hmm. actually get more growth while keeping fraud the same, as an example. So there's these interesting approaches, I think, in some different ways, depending on how the culture of the companies or the organizations yeah. and how people want to think about it. And I'm I not sure there's a right Will. answer. Yeah. No. I, I align with Will there. I think the best part to me is pitching it in such a way to where you can pitch it as improving conversion. So solve two mm-hmm. problems, right? So that's where yeah. like, you know Will and I are very aligned and why we initially started talking is, hey, if I can solve fraud and improve conversion, it's yeah. a no-brainer. Right. This is not going to be a hard sell for me to leadership or growth team. And if you can find innovative ways, so for example, there was a company I was at that I think we've talked about in the past where they wouldn't let me impact their growth, but right. they would let me impact their customer acquisition cost. So there's certain little things that you could target and find innovative ways to still solve the problem without maybe stopping or applying friction to growth. And I think that's where fraud has the hardest problem is fraud is just known to add friction to legitimate customers. And it's known to potentially slow the growth of the company or slow transactions or slow new account creations. Mm -hmm. And, and I would and, argue that's still true with some technology. It's completely true. There, completely true. You know, legacy as well as combinations of different technology being added. That is true. And I think there's this old school, new school way of thinking about fraud. Old yep. school's kind of, oh, we must stop the chargebacks at all costs. And new school is how do we balance an acceptable level of risk totally. while also growing Hundred percent growing our top line revenue. And I know all three of us are aligned on that for sure. And that's actually my favorite thing. I mean, I think I mentioned this on your guys' podcast, but like anyone can stop all of fraud. You just stop all of sales. Like <laughs> yeah, totally. It's not brain surgery, but how do you decrease the chargebacks while increasing customer experience, customer acquisition, growth, all the things? And I've been able to do it many times. You guys have been able to do it many times. But I think there's still this way of thinking internally with decision makers that, oh, it's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what we want. And I used to always tell my staff when I ran my own team that the fraudsters aren't the ones that pay your paycheck. The good customers are. And and I try to remind that to my clients as well. Like I am fully aware of who's paying for my bills. It is who's paying my invoice. It's not the fraudsters. So I don't want to touch your sales. In fact, I want to improve them. And actually, like that was really fun on a big project I did about a year and a half ago was this unexpected metric of how much I was able to increase sales for them because their process was so antiquated and they were mainly reviewing so much and they were asking for photocopies of driver's licenses to be emailed in for high dollar items. Like what? Yeah, and yeah. once you're able to show them that. So I think yeah. there's still this communication issue, but will you totally hit on a good point? 
Yeah, I'll tell you, when we were at Lyft doing fraud, we had two KPIs. Fraud, of course, was one, like our fraud rate. And we yeah. segmented that in a bunch of ways. The other one was conversion. Yeah. We committed to improving conversion every quarter and signed up for these aggressive goals. Cool. And there were a few quarters where we were actually basically trying to rebrand as a growth team, like another growth team, basically. And one example was there were these, hopefully sounds familiar to a lot of organizations, but there was some crazy fraud fire at some point in the past <laughs> I, around some payment method. And then you had a bunch of business rules that got layered in that were very punitive mm-hmm. to try to stop the bleeding and the fire. <laughs> and then nobody looked back three months later and said, hey, do we still need these yeah. punitive rules? Can we get smarter about this? Maybe dial those back. And so we did that a lot where we were always going back to old rules and removing them. And you'd see these amazing growth conversion like step ups happen when oh, yeah. we would A-B test removing <laughs> yeah. rules. And yeah. so like so much of it was like, our job was turning things off uh, yes. and opening oh up gosh. the top of the funnel. And anyway, we'd have a few quarters where actually the biggest growth wins in the organization were coming from the fraud team. And I was <laughs> like, what so are these guys awesome. like, what are, What's going well, on? It's very counterintuitive, but I think in the broader industry, it feels like there's these opportunities for fraud managers to mm. brand themselves as growth teams within yeah, the company. And it's, yeah, exactly what you said, Chris. It's you're not fighting against growth. You're like enabling growth and enabling companies to launch new business units and all sorts of other things. There's so. an actually interesting point that you just brought up that there's certain metrics that are usually not tracked or identified on the fraud side that mm. when tracked and when brought to light, uh, yep. you can really sell yourself. So a perfect example was there was a company that I was with that basically we converted this, the fraud team from this applying friction and blocking transactions to like saving transactions, if you flip it around. Mm-hmm. And so basically we had these engines that were running and ML models potentially that were blocking legitimate customers. So we flipped it around to where or let's try to save as many good customers as we can, even yep. if we have to pick up the phone and outreach and try and save them. I don't care what we have to do. And yeah. we were bringing in $5 million for that project. And it paid for our entire fraud team and operation for the year. And so you just have to find metrics and ways to innovate in a world that's all about growth and conversion. And it's a mindset shift for your team. A lot of times, if you're just going down a level, if you're managing an operations team and analysts that are doing manual review, a lot of times their KPIs are around chargebacks. And I've actually did some studies around this at a large company I was working with where If you talked to a manual reviewer and showed them their chargebacks that they missed for the next week, sometimes even two weeks, their cancel rate was so much higher Interesting, because they're counter, they're correcting it. They don't want to have that loss. And so I think that one way to do it, what you're talking about, Matt, is to switch up the KPIs that your analysts are being measured by. And if you dive down the route and go, oh, if I'm only showing them their mess ups and their missed fraud... And not having a QA process to show them their false positives or measuring yep. those at all, or not having conversations about, hey, do we have rules that we can do? It's also a fun conversation to get in a room with fraud analysts and be like, we really want to change our brand within our company. Are there areas that we can change? I mean, it's crazy to me. Sometimes I love to just like ask the quiet person in the room, like back when I used to sure. go to client offices and have meetings yeah. with the team. And just be like, so is there anything you think? And like one time at the end of the day, the guy was like, customer service isn't issuing refunds anymore. They're just issuing store credit that has a 30 day expiration date. Do you think that's why our chargebacks have gone up? And I'm like, why didn't you say this at the beginning of the day? (laughs) There's another thing that you made me think of was this merchant at the beginning of COVID, their company was like really concerned about sales. And she went to them and said, hey, 
we've been, they had a branded item that was their brand. And so they were stopping a lot of resellers. And so she went to her leadership and said, Hey, we've been stopping all these. This is how much we've been stopping. Here's an opportunity where we can turn it back on and say, okay, we're okay with people reselling our products because this mm. is going to help us keep jobs. Totally. And those are things the fraud team has some pretty big controls. And so sometimes brainstorming with each other and going, why are we turning this off? Or why are we still using that rule from 1977 or what it feels like? Sure. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what you're, at least from my perspective, seeing in the industry where I think fraud managers and fraud leaders are getting or already are more sophisticated in incorporating that growth lens. And just like you were saying, Matt, it's as a fraud manager within an organization, you're going to have evolving priorities as a company where you may need efficiency and monetization and margins become a focus for a few quarters. Okay, bring the fraud rate down. That's the most important. Others, it's grow revenue. Let's get top line. Let's get out there. And then it's maybe you just leave your fraud goals flat for a few quarters and really focus on reducing these high false positive rules that you might have lingering in your system or whatever. So when you start thinking of it like more as a full picture impact, yeah, yeah, you create some agility so you can better align with like executive priorities and just be flexible over time and not just always be hammering one nail again and again and. And it's, it's also, not a zero sum game. It's also, an, well. it's also an always evolving target. So your KPIs and your OKRs, I mean, that everything that you're doing from a fraud operation standpoint, your target should always be moving and adapting with the industry and with the economy and with the business growth and any of the impacts that's happening. Just like you had mentioned, and it's such a good call out that you just mentioned, Will, where it's sometimes you have to go flat. Or sometimes maybe some of your other metrics may have to lag or you have to underperform in one area in order to really gain a huge jump in the other. And a good fraud manager is really good at playing that game, Mm -hmm. walking that line between knowing what metrics am I okay with dropping this quarter? Because I know I'm going to make up for it threefold by increasing this metric. Backs are at 0.2%. Okay, we can take on a little bit more. We could take on a little extra. Yeah, or doing some A-B testing with like when I built the internal system for the company. I mean, this is like over 10 years. Years ago, but we had something called the accept and watch, which I called it the CYA button. Nice. And basically it was for my analysts. Like these are the ones that there wasn't a confirmed fraud, but it was that feeling in your gut. This is risky. Yep. And I was actually, I mean, I had to eat some humble pie because I actually was surprised that there was a lot fewer chargebacks than I thought there would be. And that was a good lesson for us. And huh? this was back, I mean, we just had very simple rules. I mean, you totally. know, we did not have all the fun tools that you can you know layer and adapt and change now but um, you push a button to bypass the entire fraud system yeah, no, <laughs> yeah right. i know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> yeah no yeah it was a you know thing i mean it's gosh what a fun conversation though i do think one point i would make will is i think you are right in the sense that a lot of fraud leaders that are in digital first companies have adapted this way. One of the things I see just working with so many different merchants, I mean, internationally, as well as in all different verticals, companies that were brick and mortar first have much harder time adapting to that. And it mostly is a structural thing within their company. For whatever reason, they're okay with, well, I was gonna say webcams, but it's not webcams. It's like the actual old school security videos and the loss prevention officer at the front of the store in their brick and mortar, but then anything to do with fraud, it just, it's antiquated. And there are, you know, some great leaders in fraud in those companies that are trying to assert themselves and say, Hey, there's a new way. There's a better way. But a lot of times you've got these leadership within those companies saying fraud tool is a fraud tool. Like, why do you need to upgrade? Why machine learning over rules? Like, don't they all just do the same thing? 
no, yeah. but it's a hard conversation for them to have because the, just, I don't want to say the intellect, but like the knowledge that internally in the company, they're just not moving as quickly as digital first. They're not measuring the same things. They aren't thinking the same way. They aren't moving fast and breaking things. They're several years behind from a leadership perspective. And so that can be a big challenge too. So there's so many different factions within the fire yeah. Being in San Francisco. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yes, I think you're right. I do have a bias in the lens there because of the, yeah, just the environment that my experience is in, but being digital first, but I will say maybe in the defense of some of those fraud leaders at the brick and mortar, I yeah. think vendors historically, and I'm on the vendor side now, so I can say this, have done a bad job of over-promising and yeah. under-delivering 100%. on like buzzword technologies. Oh gosh, and they'll yes. just be like, hey, if you switch over to this machine learning, it will solve all your problems. And do your laundry zero. and your taxes. Yeah. It goes to a million, yep. right? It's just, it's, and then you... You spend nine months, you do a big integration with your entire development team with all these promises that have been made, and then you end up rolling it out and it's really bumpy and painful. Yeah. And you've now you're in this sunk cost fallacy zone because mm. you've spent so much of it. So you're always stuck. They're like, hey, just add a few more features or continue this integration. And then it's, you buy yourself another quarter and you maybe see a little incremental improvement, but you're something. And so really there's enough point. horror stories yeah. out there. I feel like mm-hmm. that some skepticism I do think is warranted with like, Oh yeah, new tech and the the stuff coming out. And I think, by the way, as a as a vendor, I think we've done it to ourselves. I don't think it's for <laughs> I th- sure. I agree, and yeah. I would say I really saw that change when VC money started to come into the play. Yeah. And I'm not saying. I mean, I'm very excited. One of my clients just raised their Series A. There's good reason for VC money. It helps them grow. But there are several companies I can think of specifically, as well as others that when they got the VC money, they just put so much of it into sales without training their salespeople, without their salespeople taking a moment and saying, oh, let me learn about the industry. What else is out there? They just firmly believe that their solution is the best one and the only one. And then going back to what Matt said earlier, it's the people. A lot of times, I mean, I had several people ask me, over a few years, my answer has changed now to this question, even though I get asked it sometimes, but still, why do a lot of merchants choose X company? And I was like, it's the people are really nice. They develop friendships with them. They trust that person. So they believe what they say about the technology, even if that person doesn't really know what they're talking about. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think it's great that there are people making connections, but then you've got this tool. And yeah, to your point, retailers, especially or brick and mortar or just non-digital first companies, they can't and they won't reinvest in technology every few years, even though fraud changes that fast and technology changes that fast. And they're not always making the most informed decision. I mean, and I'm not saying this as, hey, this is why you need to hire a consultant. But there are people in this world, and I'm one of them, and you guys are also, who like to be in the know of what technology is out there. And also, I get to hear the good, the bad, the ugly, what's working, what's not working. So I think that's just another reason for collaboration. It's not just about fighting the bad guys. It's also about just being informed. In some ways, some of these vendors have become social engineers, and we have to band together, too. Yeah, yeah. It's, It's the same thing around the motivation to do... Yeah. The community building and the podcasting and also how hard it is to price risk in a way because it's like fraud is a very opaque area because the fraudsters mm-hmm. are trying to hide their behavior. They're not out in the open. You don't see them until they really come in right. and try to attack you. And so there's a lot of expertise and 
kind of walls or silos of knowledge that mm-hmm. get built up in different areas. And yeah, I think it's all related. As the transparency continues in the best practice sharing and stuff, hopefully the quality of the vendor landscape will be forced to compete and get better because there'll be more transparency to how well yeah. those solutions are really performing. The fraudsters will be in a bad spot because they're going to have their standard easy to implement attacks will be exposed more easily and, and faster. And yeah, I think it'll just help everyone and raise the tide. I agree. And it's a huge passion of mine. And I know it's of your guys's too. And we've definitely been talking off recording about some not world domination plans, but definitely ways, you know, Matt and I teased out something way back when we recorded the interview on my podcast a couple months ago, and we both just got super busy. I mean, he changed jobs in the middle and I've been all kinds of stuff, but it's coming soon. And I really can't wait. Like I just, I want it to not get built and I just want it to be in production. I'm so excited for it because I know the need is there so badly. Yeah. So I knew this would happen, which is why I just drafted a couple of questions. Like I knew we would just go and this is exactly what I think is really fun for people to hear. But moving on, one question that comes up when talking to merchants, especially the ones that are new to getting chargebacks or seeing fraud is like, why me? Like, why did they target our company? It's similar when you talk to a cardholder, but in a different way. But I think it's a good topic. And Matt actually suggested this. I think being in a PSP now, you're talking to a lot of merchants that are maybe new to seeing fraud as well. And that's probably part of it. But I think it's a really good topic to drill into further. Yeah. So. What have you guys observed as to why? And I think we're all going to have different answers, which yeah, is why I'm sure excited about this. Why fraudsters and or like fraud networks are targeting specific business models and their brands. Matt, I'll have you go first. Yeah, I've studied this for quite a long time and I've spent countless hours thinking it over and actually being able to identify quite a lot of trends in just after looking at the data and identifying what companies go under attack at what time. I've been able to come up with a fairly decent kind of framework. I won't give out all the secret sauce, but some of the things that we look for. Number one, rapid growth is a key part here. So if you're a company with rapid growth, if you potentially, for example, use the technology industry, right? So if you're normally getting, let's just say 50,000 orders a year, and then within a, something happens, you launch a new product, you get some good PR, something happens, something explodes, and all of a sudden you have this explosive growth. What ends up happening is there's always a delay time in your fraud capabilities, your counter fraud capabilities. So your fraud team is not able to handle these massive influx of orders and you don't have the manpower or bandwidth. A lot of times you have to start tightening things down and companies don't want to do that because they're loving all the new growth and all Mm. of a sudden their share prices go up and fraudsters know this. So that's one thing that they look for. The other thing that some interesting things that they look for is how many jobs are currently posted for the fraud team. So that's interesting. That's one that I've been able to basically very confidently being able to lock down is if they have, for example, a fraud management slot and two new fraud analyst slots. That's a great company to target. The other thing that they're going to look for is they're going to look for terms and conditions. They're going to see if they can find weaknesses within your terms and conditions, potentially some sort of exploit there. That is fun. So I would say really you have this combination of different things that they look for. The other thing that they look for is companies that seem weak. So I'll give you an example. Companies that do not have a fraud team is another company that they're going to target. Companies where they simply don't have the expertise. And by the way, if anyone wants to know how they do that, including, by the way, huge governments across the world, if they want to know what company has what within the org chart or organization, LinkedIn, by the way, completely open source. So I can go on LinkedIn and I can open a company and I can say, okay, here's their org structure. Here's the teams. Here's the analysts that work for them. I can open a a fraud analyst LinkedIn page 
and I can identify what weaknesses they're going to have based on their experience. So I could potentially say this person probably has very little account takeover experience based Mm. on the companies they've worked for and based on the fraud that they've likely experienced. So I'm going to actually target this type of attack. And I'm talking more about the sophisticated fraud networks. That's where they go into that level of detail. But I would say at the end of the day, your terms and conditions, how many fraud positions you have, rapid growth. And the other thing is what technology you're using, especially as, by the way, I give all credit to Chris on this one with the new laws that are placed mm-hmm. in certain locations like the state of California and other locations. You have, to, yeah, you have to share your data. You have to, excuse me, you have to be more transparent. Yeah, you have to be transparent now about who you're sharing your data with. And of course, fraudsters know that and they're going to identify potentially using vendors that are weaker than others or using technologies that might not be as up to date. And by the way, they have a full sophisticated list that I'm sure Q6 Cyber can give you that will tell you exactly what companies they're going to attack or which ones have the exploits. And that's what they Mm -hmm. target. So those are some high level wins. Yeah. And just to add on that last point, and then I want to hear from Will. Yeah. I never have to worry about you stealing my ideas. And I appreciate that. But you can, <laughs> you can give me credit. I mean, I don't know if it's an idea, it's just an observation. Yeah. So I'm starting to find that merchants that are all using the same technology will all reach out to me about very similar exploits. Yeah. Specifically, one example is whitelist fraud. So there's definitely at least one fraud network that, you know, is purchasing a rather small dollar item on merchant A that uses the same consortium. And then they wait a little bit and or sometimes they don't even have to wait that long, but they wait a little bit and then they go find merchant B and place a very high dollar order with the same information, the same email, the same card, whatever it is. I mean, a lot of times they're not going to wait on the same card, but like the same identifiers And they know that because a chargeback hasn't come in yet, or they used a prepaid card for the first purchase, so there is no chargeback, they'll then exploit that knowing that, oh, that system puts a pretty high number value in their scoring system on orders that have been placed that haven't had chargebacks. And to my knowledge, they don't have a timeline. So they aren't saying no chargebacks within 90 days. They're saying 90 days or more. They're saying, oh... 10 days without a chargeback, that has the same value as an account that has 200 days with no chargeback. And so that's just one example of as soon as, I mean, sometimes a merchant won't even tell me what fraud tool they're using. And they're like, we're seeing this and this is what it looks like. And and I'm like, oh, I know who you use. And I can pick on other, I mean, not pick on, but I can use other examples, but that's just one pretty clearly of there is a way. And it used to be that the best way for them to find out who you used as a vendor was to look up conference agendas of who you're talking with and webinars, et cetera. But GDPR, I mean, a very good side effect for them of GDPR is looking at what vendors you're sharing your data with. And then they know who your core case management system is and who your verification system is. And oh, this verification system doesn't have very good info in this country in the EU or in Southeast Asia. So we're just going to use them because they can't verify anything. Yeah. Something I'm definitely seeing big trends. Super interesting. Yeah. So, Will, I'd love to hear your input. You just have have different perspectives. Yeah, no, totally. So I'll share my mental model of how I think about trends and fraud happening, and then maybe riff a little bit on some of the trends. But basically, the way that I think about it is that there's broadly... I think of maybe broadly two classifications of fraudsters or two categories of fraudsters. You have the maybe fraudsters that are coming in and they bought a card dump online and then they're just trying to monetize them and they're a little more casual and not as sophisticated and just trying to 
get through the system or something. Tech, and yeah. yeah, a little lower tech and, and driven by humans, basically. Yep. I think the way those types of actors typically work is it's a little like on trend or like meme driven or something where they're on their chat groups <laughs> and they're like, hey, everyone check it out. There's this new retailer and do all your card testing there and, and then go to this sure. other retailer to do checkouts or whatever. Like this new Louis Vuitton page is not set up with the right checks or whatever. And then they just run for it. So those trends, I think, evolve relatively rapidly, but it's typically very opportunistic and they are social and then they'll just chase these opportunities. And then there's this other category, which I think is where it's like the fraudsters that get into that world of buying software to help them scale their fraudulent activities mm-hmm. or even writing software in, the case, in, in a few cases of more sophisticated attackers. And then that is a case where it's like there's some software out there that's on the black market or that they're writing themselves. It's basically tooled up for an industry specifically. And then that'll propagate through all the merchants within a given industry, typically starting with the most sophisticated and then going down because they don't want to start with the people with the best fraud defenses. They want to go to a second tier where they haven't put that stuff in place, but it's the biggest target so they can get the most money out of them without them noticing basically until that tier stops it. And then they'll go to the next year. So one example I just thinking about from my days at working in ride sharing on that side is that there was this massive attack that's been written about widely online that originated in China. Yep. I knew you were going to go there. I love the story. Uber, like a fist fight. And both companies were just dumping hundreds of millions of dollars into incentives. And it was a classic case of growth only matters. Don't worry about fraud. Like we'll figure out fraud later. And fraudsters saw that and they invested very sophisticated technical teams like writing high quality software to basically reverse engineer mobile client APIs, spoof a bunch of very realistic lat long data to make it look like they were driving when they weren't. And they were both using the software themselves and then also reselling the software to networks of fraudsters that were then running it and plugging in their own stolen credit cards to basically get money out of the system. And there were different versions of it. They had some that were driver incentive fraud and others that were rider transaction credit card fraud. And anyway, different combinations. And then being a US rideshare person at Lyft, it was a while before we saw Mm. that hit in the United States. And Mm -hmm. they basically had to retool and change a bunch of stuff around. So about a year after the other DD and Uber were seeing it in China, then the rideshare operators in the US started seeing it in the US. And then Lyft got hit by it because Uber had already seen it for a while. And then is it called Juno? The the one in New York, I think probably got it after that. The smaller rideshare operators. So it just like moves down the pyramid of sophistication and they start with the the biggest target. So that's why I think that sort of trend. So that trend is now not around anymore because those companies did a good job stopping it and like that's gone. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of what I think about fraud trends. That's like the underlying mechanism that I often it's a great sort of point. think about. So yeah. I've heard about things like some of these new API companies that are coming out online. Fraudsters are starting to do a lot of different uh, synthetic identity fraud or ATO uh, fraud on them and trying to monetize that way. But it's almost just the flavor of the month. And I think totally. in six months, it'll be something else. And the details of the attacks that are happening today, I'm not super plugged into and probably should be a little more plugged into. But I think that evolving dynamic of 
how that fraud marketplace is working will probably mm-hmm. that, I think I feel like that's the thing that'll be around forever and is driving the trends under the surface. I agree. Yeah. In twenty, I think it was I was just trying to think. I think it was twenty seventeen. I spoke at a pretty big conference in San Fran with the head of fraud at Uber and he walked through that whole sophisticated thing with emulators and they were advertising on social media for half off Uber or Lyft or whoever. I think Get was on there. There were a lot of different ones internationally. And then they would essentially spoof the location of the person who wanted the ride and make it look like they were on the corner of first and main in whatever city in the US and use a stolen credit card to you guys and then pocket the half price. And it, it definitely emulators have come so far and I need to do a full episode on Lincoln sphere. Cause I honestly haven't done as much talking about it on the podcast as I have with merchants. Yeah. 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 And I, I honestly want to get some more information from Ellie, obviously, cause Q6 is where I learned all about like, oh, yeah, yeah. They, they and, lead the way sniff and yeah, yeah, yeah. All these names I never thought we get caught with so many acronyms and words, but <laughs> yeah. just to pepper on what you guys are saying. So this is something that I talk about often at like when I'm keynoting events and things like that, or talking to large groups of people trying to explain e-commerce, but I really haven't dove into it in the podcast. So I wrote out a couple of things just to organize my thoughts, but I think there's really two purposes for why fraudsters will target an e-com company. One is to monetize. We know that one, purchase an item and fence it or purchase an item and use it for themselves or whatever, or triangulation or ATO, whatever they're doing, they're monetizing it. The other is to achieve a goal. I don't really know. There's probably a better term for it, but I'm thinking of card testing as a perfect example of this. Where, and this happens a lot, there was a merchant I was working with just a week ago, like a mid-sized merchant that all of a sudden got hit with, like they basically created one account and then just kept updating the card. They realized that it didn't go through any fraud filters till after there was a purchase made, but there was a $0 auth. So they were using the $0 auth in this one account, but they wrote a bot script. So it was like every two minutes. So there were like tens of thousands. And this poor merchant didn't know it until their gateway, their PSP alerted them. And here they're paying all these fees and auth rate and auth fees for transactions that don't become transactions anymore. And they're mid-level. So it's like a 10 cent auth fee. And it was tens of thousands of them and they didn't know how to stop it. And so these guys, they're not being monetized, but their rails are being used card test to then go on, like Will said, and make a bigger purchase. Because a lot of times it's either they're about to sell a batch and they want to know what's current or they have bought a batch and they're wanting to do it. And there's other things too that they're using the rails or the systems of merchants to do. But I think card testing is the best example of that. So that's the first set of two buckets that I set out. Will, do you have something to add to that? I was just thinking out loud. It's a yeah. weird part about fraud at the end. And it's very, and the interesting part about it is that it is an ecosystem of people that are selling different components of fraud yes. into I, that the was different something else I was going to say. Yeah. Market. Yeah. So in the case of a card tester, they actually might be monetizing in the sense that Absolutely their right. deliverable their on the market is like a pre-vetted list of credit cards. And that can sell for a lot more than like a random dump that they haven't done any offs on top of. It could right. be also that they are. Zero dollar offing all the cards to then themselves go use and try to buy stolen goods with or something else. But in the first case, it's they're actually just buying or stealing credit cards and then increasing their quality by ensuring that they're all valid so they can sell it for at a premium. That's definitely something we've seen change over time. Like it used to be that the same person would do end to end, right? Like back in Brett Johnson's days, like you had to learn all the things. 
now it's really, it is an ecosystem. And there are yep. people who are card testing. There are people who are selling those cards and that is all they do. That is their company. There are others that are setting up accounts. There are others that are doing ATO and then selling them. There are others that are yep. accessing email inboxes. There are others, but then there's this whole fraud as a service that I've started to talk about with refunding or yep. with carding for you. There's so many spinoffs. Like this is something that I really want to write out and provide, I don't know, as some kind of resource. Oh, it'd be totally. Yeah. I'm just spider it out. I think this is one thing that was very non-intuitive to me when I first started thinking about fraud and working on it is I think as a fraud manager, you always think there's no way that a software engineer that's malicious is going to sit down and write code to take advantage of my app and then go through it. But what you need to realize is that what will be more likely to happen is that there's a fraudster who's just found your application and is buying a generic software package that has 95% of the work done for them. And then they're just making a few configuration changes to configure it to your business. 100%. And then they're like off to the races. So it's not like they're building some huge custom application. They're building like a Shopify. It's a cookie cutter. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Or like a, a Squarespace for fraud yep. instead of building websites or whatever. So it's pretty easy for them to stitch together a few things and then go. And by the way, Chris, the, the story that you described, it makes my skin crawl because that is exactly why we have these arguments about integrating your fraud solution pre-auth instead of post-auth. So I can tell you how many times there's absolutely a super important need for post-auth, especially on fraud side, but there's also a huge need for pre-auth. And that's where that, more. Yeah, that but for small testing. mid, I mean, it's. I know, no, I know. And I had to give some very creative solutions. I was like, okay, here's how you stop it today. Here's totally. how you stop it for the next few weeks, and then here's how you stop it forever. Totally. Um, not forever, but like it speaks to. There used to be a time where it was easy, and in some ways, it wasn't that long ago when there have been some pavement facilitators that are in their growth phase that kind of had a similar mindset of, oh, we just need to have as many accounts as possible and we'll worry about fraud later. And when those were building very quickly, it was extremely easy for fraudsters to test cards because they could just get their own merchant account and just run them through for a buck each or whatever. Or they could even test them and then run them for 500 or a thousand or whatever for their imaginary services. But as those are starting to lock up more, that's where they have to start getting more creative. And so it's either a function of their business, like it's a piece of it or they're monetizing it. That's kind of the first thing. And then I think too, it's sophisticated, not sophisticated, et cetera. But I think there's also a brand component as well as a service component. So are they looking for, usually don't like to say names, but these are going to be the popular things that everybody sells and buys. Are they looking for a GoPro or a Dyson vacuum or an iPhone? And they know that they can't go to Apple or GoPro or Dyson anymore because they used to have a target on their back, similar to what Will's talking about. They'll go to the top of the mountain first. And as soon as the top of the mountain figures out how to solve that problem, they trickle down. So then they're going to resellers. Yep. And like a painful one is camera resellers because the profit yep. margin is so razor thin. Yep. But they're lo- out mm. the whole camera. And some of these lenses can be over a thousand bucks. Totally. And I know that's just one example travels like that. There's a lot of them that have razor thin margins, but fraudsters don't really care. It's not like they're saying, okay, I really want to defraud X merchant. It's I want to get that mm-hmm. thing. I want to get that trip, that airline ticket, that whatever it is. 
And so they're not targeting Joe Schmo's website. They're targeting, oh, Joe Schmo's website sells this item that I know consumers are going to buy from me for a premium price. So, I mean, we could obviously talk about this for a long time and I wrote down other things too, but I think too, there's a situation of a loner versus a network. There's the difference between state sponsored versus just random group of people. And when you've been in fraud for as long as the three of us have, I think you can get used to looking at the data and going, oh, this looks more like state sponsored than a loner or sure. this could be like a team of smart teenagers or street gangs yep. or whatever, or just based on their MOs and their the state sponsored ones are the ones that get scary. Those are where it starts. And that's terrible. your specialty. Matt. Yeah, that's, that, that's I was going to say, I have very little experience yeah, in that area. That's where I start Can getting on a friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where my skin starts crawling. And once when you've experienced it and have seen it before, it stands out to you. It's, yeah. it's really easy to identify because I can't talk too much here, but there, it just when you see it, you do. And, and I've it, seen it, it a your hair on the back of your neck starts raising because it's, this is so far. I mean, like not only that, there's like geopolitical implications. There's so many other things that people don't think about that right. have to go into this. It's well, and what are they doing it to fund, right? I mean, it. in some cases, it's a fact of, oh, Americans have so much money. Don't worry about it. We're totally. just going to steal from here or there. Next thing Other you know, they're funding a nuclear it's weapon. Factions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was just yeah. going to say. Yeah. yeah, it's factions of... Maybe there's some ties to state-sponsored stuff, but they're on their own. Yep. And maybe they get some great data after there was a state-sponsored breach and yep. the state intelligence agency comes through for the data they want. And then they chum the waters and give their buddies in these little factions, their like tentacles out of these intelligence agencies. They give them that data to go monetize yep. or other times they're doing it to fund something specifically. And I mean, obviously I'm preaching to the converted here. Matt knows more than I do, but no, 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 totally. I think I'm just like talking about it more generally to yes. help you. Know, these are the kinds of things that Matt and I nerd out about for three hours until yeah, yeah. his phone dies. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and his 100%. wife is, are you going to feed our animals? Um, <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, sometimes those aren't as important for a merchant to identify as what's the problem and how do we fix it? But I do think that the why is important because it can be factored in how to fix it. Because you can also know, okay, if this is this kind of group, I know what they're doing now, but I can also guess what they're going to do the next three, four or five steps. So that if we're implementing new technology, we can implement it not just for this one problem, but for the next five steps. So there's also some interesting things that you guys are going to start seeing that I've heard whispers about, and I'm starting to somewhat see it, is there is currently a state-sponsored fraud attack happening today, and it is coming out of somewhere in the Asia-Pacific area. And what's really interesting about it is it looks like fraud. It smells like fraud. It probably even walks like fraud. But the actual purpose is to actually gather data, and the data is what is actually what they're trying to get to build a sophisticated international network of identities. I have to leave it at that, but it's very interesting. My gut feeling is Mm. in 12 to 15 months, something will will come out on the news about it. But think of it as there's a big country out there over in that area that loves data. They'll do anything they can to get their hands on it. And they might have partnered with a very sophisticated fraud network that happens to be in the same area that might even happen (laughs) to be the same nationality. And I wonder how many other people are yelling it in their head. That's the hope. That's the hope. And and yeah, it's really interesting because, for example, a very interesting type of fraud is to collect data is if let's just say that I use a stolen credit card and I'm trying to target or gather information on this person and I send up an order, let's just say I, I buy a pair of socks and I send it to the address that I think it is. 
and there's not a chargeback on that order, then now it's a backend way of confirming data about certain people. I'm trying to dance around what's happening without actually saying it, but basically they're using it to gather intelligence in a very new and unique way that I have never seen before. And it's so smart. It's It's such a good way to do it. Yeah, it's such a good way to do it. Having having been like my entire lens being on the merchant side and from my history and being and thinking about kind of e-commerce fraud and the world of monetizing around fraud, it's almost like fraud as a strategy to Mm. get an informational advantage is so scary to think about. Yeah, it's just nuts. Yeah, and they're so sophisticated. When you start going down the state-funded route, uh, Mm. the money and resources, Mm -hmm. and by the way, you're protected in the most beautiful bubble you've ever seen. You have no concerns. You will try things that this standard Mm -hmm. fraud networks wouldn't try because maybe they're worried about the identity or getting caught or some sort of really big, they're not going to hack the NSA. Start looking at these recent hacks on the federal government. And these are things now people are becoming more confident in the attempts. And so the fraud is going to be becoming more confident. And there's also how many fraudsters, by the way, do you guys know that have been arrested recently? Yeah, very good point. How That's something I, I listened to a podcast today, actually, where they were like, how can people committing fraud be so bold and have things delivered to their house? And I'm like, yep. because nobody's doing anything. No about one's doing anything. It. There's no yeah. law enforcement, especially in the U.S., but like. It has to do with sophistication well, of law right. enforcement, too. There's not a fraud manager at your yeah. level. Like at this point, oh, and, yeah. and the companies that are making the biggest impact, by the way, are the ones that are actually doing all of the intelligence for the law enforcement yep. and handing them a over. nice package. Yeah. And yeah. then they just make the arrest. That's and I know those, and I know it. those, co- a lot of those totally. companies have built that, but it's really hard internally to try to get budget for investigations because you can't always tie a direct dollar amount to it. Because restitution, et cetera. Now, it is a very good preventative. It's the same reason why in the dressing room of most retailers, I mean, not that I've been in one in a long time, but they usually say they'll prosecute people who shoplift, right? There was a very large company. I mean, they're still around, but they were one of the first that I knew to hire someone out of the Secret Service to build an investigative unit. And they created these huge investigations and then they made sure that when those arrests happened, they were not only coordinated internationally, so they couldn't tip anyone off, but they made sure that those made serious headlines. Yeah, yeah, like totally. They worked with their PR them. department. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then next thing you know, those are being posted all over yeah. in different ways. And that's such a good strategy, but you have to have, back to what Will was talking about, right? Like you have to have the whole company understanding that's a really smart way of strategy to explain like, hey, don't mess with us. But it isn't going to have a direct, I mean, it is going to be a cost center more or less, but it is going to have a huge deterrence eventually. Not only that, but also you get some serious satisfaction of these guys committed millions of dollars of fraud on our network and we get to at least know that they're going to stand in trial. But you bring up such a good point, Matt, that there's, I mean, and there's obviously, there's street gangs, especially with COVID, but even before that, that have been going from drugs and violence to carding Uh, because not only because it's less violent and less risky, but because if they are caught and that is a capital if, if. yeah, they know that the time served is going to be so much less than even for a dime bag. Oh, totally. Serious need for reform. I mean, obviously we're speaking mostly U.S. centric here, but even 
in Europe and in other countries. And as you say, in state sponsored, like they're untouchable and that makes it scary too. But the other thing is if you're really good and if you come from a cyber background or cybersecurity guys, like the cyber mm. fraud guys yep. are, if you're good, it is almost impossible to get caught. And that is what's so challenging about the problem is that these are repeat offenders in most cases. Mm -hmm. This is not, I mean, yes, of course, the the 16 year old that goes on Reddit and learns about how to commit fraud. I mean, you have those. Or buys Bob's refunding. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. But I mean, those are easy. Those are easy to catch that. And usually Mm -hmm. you scare them off. It's not not a big deal, but the guys that there is some massive fraud networks that are, by the way, like we talk about how, yeah, yeah, I've been in, for 15 years you've been in for 30 years been in for 20 years by the way they are having the same conversations about how long they've been and and so that's the crazy part is and that's the hard part is that all of these things that we the veterans in the industry are like we've seen this before we know Mm -hmm. this is happening Mm -hmm. we know how to solve this Mm -hmm. problem yeah yeah and they know know the same thing yeah yeah. (laughs) they're gonna say how greece solve this so we're gonna do it this way it's always yeah they they know all the tools in the toolbox and so they can go oh okay so this company put in this measure oh we'll use that tool that we used ago and that's why it's the ultimate chess game yeah. And I find just like how much I feel like a fraud historian sometimes. Oh, for sure. Like I sometimes I'm like, how could I do this with two years of fraud knowledge? I couldn't. I mean, not even totally. just as a consultant, but working with these high level companies that are getting those sophisticated attacks because you're like, oh, yeah, I've seen this before. Da, 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 da. Or I've seen this in a different vertical. I've seen this over in gaming and ticketing because they usually get hit first with the more sophisticated things for digital goods first because. Yep. It's much faster and, and harder yeah. and more challenging. If it works in digital, it's going to work in physical easy. So, I mean, there's so many different things. So I know we could talk about this forever, but we need to wrap it up at some point. There are other questions on here. So obviously, I think we need to have a part two. I think Absolutely. that would be super fun. On both um, sides. Sounds great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I do want to ask, I really am curious and would love to have you spend just a couple of minutes talking about Balancer because I think what's really cool... Sure is when merchants, and I'm seeing this with Sumatra, I had Monica Sharp on last week with a couple other companies coming up that are these smaller startups that I like to keep my eye on, not just because people are like, what's new? But I just am a geek about it. You're merchants who see a problem that needs to be solved in the wild, so to speak, and then put such a strong problem or that you have such a strong solution that you go out and create this company. You didn't become a vendor because, oh, you wanted to go work. You filled out a resume and said it. So vendor because you're creating a product and a company. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the problem behind why you guys created Bouncer and then how you're solving that problem. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to talk about it. So it actually connects strongly to what we were talking about earlier about what I see or saw when I was at Lyft is like the evolving responsibility of a fraud manager to not just be thinking about charge racks and fraud, but also thinking about growth and user experience and conversion alongside that. And I had this moment when I was on the buyer side where we were looking for solutions that were basically better ways of authenticating users and thinking about great user experiences that could provide security and supplement with some of the things that we were doing on the detection side. So we had some signals and models and we're using a lot of third parties to get really good at our scoring and and our precision recall was okay. But then this question kept coming up of, okay, we have 1% of our users that we think are a gray area, higher risk. What do we do now? And when we came to that question, it was like, there weren't a lot of great answers out there. We were using 
contact support, <laughs> or we tried out things like a micro deposit to your bank account to prove account ownership or some of these other things. But all those form factors were quite clunky. And so that was the initial kind of aha moment where it just felt like a, such a gap and such a big thing that we wish we had. And we ended up building some things internally that as a rideshare company, I was like, it makes no sense for this for me to be <laughs> totally. investing my precious like, <laughs> yeah. roadmap and resources in this versus making our drivers happier or making our riders totally. happier or anything else. That was sort of the initial seed. And after I left Lyft, I was taking a break and kicking around a few things, but that one just kept coming back again and again and talked to a few other fraud managers in tech first companies. And I heard the same theme a number of times. And that became the inspiration for our bouncer scan product, which is our primary product today. And the quick TLDR of that product is that it's a users can basically during checkout or even at onboarding scan their credit card, either with their mobile phone camera, if they're using a mobile app, if the merchants a mobile app or also with their desktop camera if they're if they're on web and we're running a bunch of checks and models and I'll spare you all the details but basically just trying to confirm when you're scanning the credit card you're really scanning the credit card it's yes. not a piece of paper or a computer screen or something that a fraudster might try to and use I don't mean to cut card. you off there will but let me try I tried to trick that bastard for so many times <laughs> I mean I used everything I possibly could to try and trick it and I couldn't I mean it would fail if it, it didn't matter if it was a perfect image up printed on the most beautiful paper. I mean, I Photoshop things. I mean, I did everything you can. I mean, the, the technology is sick. The te- yeah, the team did a great job in the models that they developed. But basically the idea is like, can we use computer vision and this camera technology to approximate a card present level of security by just asking you to present your card and then really verifying it's there with image analysis and hardware analysis and some techniques like that. So typically the customers were working with our fraud managers at e-commerce merchants that are looking for like low friction authentications. And that's where Bouncer Scan comes in. So that's the, yeah, the quick overall story that was the inspiration for Bouncer and, and where we are. That's actually how, how Will and I met too, is by the way, is the way that Will and I met is I wanted to, we were talking about KPIs and we were talking about ways to find more innovative ways to basically add friction without adding friction. Mm-hmm. And that's where Will and I went down this huge rabbit hole and became friends is the fact is I was like, how do I get card present level security mm-hmm. in a card not present environment? And how do I potentially improve my conversions? And that way, by the way, it completely offsets the cost of whatever the tool is and then some and Bouncer solved that problem literally overnight. And so Will and I have been friends ever since because of that. Because he made you look like a hero. He made me look like a superhero. <laughs> and life was good from then on. That's good to hear. <laughs> and you know, even stepping outside of Bouncer for a second, just thinking about the area of challenges and authentications, I think mm. there's been a lot of vendor innovation in that space, but I typically have seen it on the know your customer and the money laundering side with photo IDs. Yeah. And, so, and there's been players in that space for a number of years that are innovative and great and seem good. But in the e-commerce space, it's not intuitive to try totally. to get a driver's license in order to complete your checkout or right. to sign up for an account or anything like that. So that kind of just yeah, the driver's license thing didn't. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Now, granted, if you're signing up to stay at someone else's home or have people stay Absolutely. at home, that yes. makes perfect sense for your driver's license. Or if you're signing up to be a driver for a ride exactly. share. There are definitely use cases for that, but that is more on the KYC piece, less of the e-com piece. And so I think too, it's so good because there are a couple companies that primarily focus on the ID piece, but 
they do offer take a picture of your card front and back, but they're not really authenticating it as well. And I think one of the problem of some of those companies too, and I know a lot of marketplaces have had to switch it up quite a bit because some oh, yeah, of them, because- some of them will get bought out and then they'll stall, innovation will stall. Or others, they had a great product at first, but then the fraudsters got was keen to it and figured out how to get around that specific type of... Or over-promise, underperform. There's another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there are definitely some companies that promise ID scans and you can just put up a photocopied yeah. picture of somebody else's driver's license yep. or Tall. change out the name. I mean, we've all seen how this can happen. So... I think having a product that not only allows it to be card present, but you're really verifying that card is actually a card. Yep. And you guys have how many checks on that card? It's a lot. Like In terms of categories of checks, there's yeah. around four primary that we're doing of different types, like paper detection, screen detection, right. hardware analysis, liveness detection. And then the underlying data that we're using to train is in like the millions. That's what so I thought, just, yeah. Yeah, enormous data set we've been... And there's probably a, a separate story around the elbow grease required to do that. But oh, imagine gosh. saying it's like... <laughs> I was going to say, it or, takes Will in a dark room and a college professor. <laughs> and that's what... <laughs> yeah, Sam King, my co-founder, is a college yeah. professor of computer security. So yeah. Uh, but no, we are very creative in terms of sourcing lots of real cards. So things mm-hmm. like ordering collector's items on eBay where people... <laughs> sell old expired credit cards which is oh so smart yeah, so smart. like a weird when you, i heard that for the first time on our podcast and i was like dude that is the smartest thing that was so a, brilliant yeah, like, who that's like a marketing <laughs> i did yeah, it's great i worked with a company that has a lot of different art on their gift cards there is a whole market for gift cards with zero dollars on it just because it has a pretty picture because this company likes to do special edition for different holidays yeah different locations or all that other stuff. So there's this whole sub market for gift cards that have no value, which you could also use for fraud, of course. But that actually sounds like a really fun story for next time. Like, I I mean, gosh, my editor already is going to be like, this is a long one. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we'll leave it there. (laughs) And also I have a teenager to go pick up at a friend's house. So I'm like, conscious of that. That shows though, just your ingenuity as well as how much you were committed to it. And I have to wonder if because you were the end user at one point and you definitely had probably been overpromised, underdelivered, etc. How much e-commerce merchants rely on that technology. So totally, you went yeah. above and beyond to make sure that was going to be reliable. Yeah. And the thing that always got me fired up and still does today is it's actually not the fraudsters. Like I want to stop fraud and get them out of the system, but it's more the false positives. It's like oh, every time you take... Yeah. A good user and you get in their way and you tell them they can't use your service because you made a mistake. That makes me like, oh, yeah. So mad at myself. Yeah. I actually, exactly. Sometimes it's a very high value users and you lose their entire lifetime spend for this horrible experience. That's it's completely insane. So, part of getting really high quality, it is the maybe the cool part of it of doing all the good screen detection and things you have to do to stop the fraudsters, but it's also like getting a really great sample. So when you're seeing a weird card or a weird design or like all these edge cases and we're supporting all credit card designs and all that sort of stuff, it just, you have to really get to those edge cases and make sure that they're accounted for and included to get the level of performance that's up to our standard and, and inquired. So how did you get the Amex Black card? I'm kidding. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. right? Yeah, totally. And can you send it my way? Um, yeah, right. <laughs> no, I think one quick question I feel like people are going to be asking when they definitely, I mean, so first of all, I have to say, I really applaud the fact that 
your focus is more on the good customers and making sure that if their card is good and all that, they can just pass through all the rest. And that's the reason why I really enjoy working with Identic as well, which I yep. just, we were, the three of us were just talking about before recording and I'm going to make an intro to you guys because I think there's some synergy there and focusing on the 95% that's good and yep. getting those out of the funnel even, right? If you feel really confident about it, you can get them out of the funnel. You can cut down your costs on all your other fraud technology, but also you're giving them a seamless experience. So that's the first thing, like huge kudos to you. And I think that only because you were a merchant in product, would you think of those things? And that's why it's I agree such a cool with that. thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's just too many products that I see that I'm like, you've never been an end user, have you? <laughs> yeah, um, right. And it's just, it's a difference between somebody reading an owner's manual for a specific totally, car and then yeah. actually yeah, it's like it. If you're building it for yourself, that's always a good place to start. Right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So one quick thing I want to touch on though, is you made a comment about, or maybe it was Matt, like card present authentication, but for a card not present environment, I feel like I can hear people being like, so can we get card present interchange? Can we get card present (laughs) chargebacks? And I know the answer. I'm sure that's a question you get a lot. I just give you the opportunity to answer that. And hey, for sure. No, appreciate it. Card networks listening. Yeah. Yeah. The short answer is yeah. within the payments industry, card present has this specific technical meeting of you're putting the chip in the reader and you're getting that cryptographic key off of there. And that's associated with a lower interchange rate. So we're definitely not doing card present transactions in that sense. But I do like to think about it like we're providing card present security. Exactly. When we set our minds internally, our internal targets, we do target fraud rates among our approved transactions at card present fraud rates are lower because... And the intuition on our side is basically that we are asking the person to present the physical card and then we prove it's present. So if we're getting lower than that bar, either our technology is not working well enough or there's something else that's just wrong in the system. But that ought to be where we're able to, to get wow. to. Now, Good for you we, to measure that. I mean, to try to compare to that. Oh, I mean, I'm sure it's a battle all the time. I mean, yeah. it's a moving target. <laughs> yeah, but, but sure, compared, sure. but, but yes, yeah, I didn't want to create confusion around the interchange. I, I appreciate the Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That no, is not I the just, case, unfortunately, that we can do the... Maybe one day I'm a goal. But do yeah. you store the images and the maybe the response, or maybe it's just like the response information so that should a chargeback come up, the merchant can provide, we captured a photo of this card and you know, it passed that's a, all these security checks. Yeah, it's a great question. So we've actually just had merchants ask for that in the last quarter or so, wow. which is new to us. So we're looking into providing that service to, to the merchants. Now, to clarify that how the technology works, we actually don't send any card images to our server mm. or hands or anything like that. All of that part of our machine learning runs on the iPhone or Android device locally. That's oh, the wow. cool part. That's really running cool. the models it's, it's a, on the device. It's the most. It's, yeah. so, it's <laughs> similar to Identic, right? We're not transferring any or storing any data. No yeah. And data. it's a big. So when you work, yeah, it's totally. And when you work with these security teams at yeah. these larger merchants, yep. they're so sensitive to that. Rightly they so. Are. These days, we always took the stance of well, let's not touch any data we, mm-hmm. that we don't absolutely need, and try to not touch PII, not touch PCI data, and just keep it locally right. on the device. So anyway, that's sort of the. But the, the yeah, I happen to know someone that's an expert in chargeback. If yeah. you need to pick my brain, I can help you with what they would need for responding to that. But I, I feel like that's uh, a really good opportunity for you guys. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, no. And I, yeah, to answer your original question, we've actually just had a few merchants asking us if we could provide a way to present back the card images for 
disputing chargebacks to show mm-hmm. that we did have the card presented from the user. And, and these are merchants that are not necessarily PCI compliant themselves. It's very easy mm-hmm. for us to just return the, the crop totally. image to them, but then there's right. the PCI data yeah. storage pieces and all that sort of stuff. So we're hopefully have something there shortly, but we're basically looking at some PCI data storage providers to host hmm. those images on our behalf and that merchants can then access in order that's to cool. use for the purposes. That's of a different approach that I was thinking of. Yeah, that's good. I mean, there also might be a way that you can provide the data output without providing the picture to be able to fulfill some of those requirements. Like bouncer confirms the, that the transaction w- or the the customer had the credit card present, for example. Yeah, but the bank wouldn't know who bouncer was just yet. I mean, hopefully one day, but you can do it in a way that we provide technology that assess that blah, blah, blah. And then... This is how just, I mean, I'm thinking it out loud and also not wanting to do everyone's homework for them. But I think that there's a way to do that without the images even too. And it might be an interesting A-B test and and C, responding the correct way. Because too many people don't realize that the chargeback process is so subjective. I know you guys understand that, but a lot of people yeah. don't. And there are some ways that I have gotten around some requirements by fulfilling, by being able to say the words around it and and totally, provide context yeah. well i know yeah, a chargeback and- expert that uh <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. I'm like, <laughs> let's, uh, let's stay in touch here because i think you've, yeah. uh, you've yeah. i i, I want a yeah. referral fee for this conversation please <laughs> this is please, happy to, happy to. Um, yeah and, and i'd uh, like uh, some stock please i will say i totally agree with you that there's this large opportunity on technology like this, I believe, mm-hmm. on the chargeback representment side of yeah. things. Yeah. And so up until now, I think we've done a lot on the stolen card fraud side. Yeah. And yep. we're now just getting into the feature set on the representment enhancement and chargeback recovery and all that. So which is so cool. It's like another yeah, it's it's sort of greenfield for us that I think we'll have some things there in the next two quarters. But anyway, yes to what you're saying. I think this is like exactly what the types of things that we ought to be doing and adding features along the way. It's so funny because now that I know you, I, I just, in a pre-COVID world, when you say you're solving this problem, I could just picture like the three of you guys in like a dark basement with like ordering old <laughs> credit cards off eBay <laughs> and like literally duct taping this stuff together and then coming up with this badass solution that's running machine <laughs> learning on devices and like doing this crazy sophisticated stuff. And just like you said, like with your leadership team has just so much talent. What you guys are going to come up with, I'm fascinated for it. Like you haven't told me this before. I didn't know that you guys were going down this route. So I, I'm super excited. To of see course, my brain went for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I know. It's a test. Yeah, yeah, you saw the potential, I think, right away. Yeah, you guys are going to come up with something cool. Yeah, yeah you're going to come up for with sure. something cool for sure. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, this is so much fun, you guys. I mean, honestly, I'm like, God, do we just combine both of our podcasts? No, I don't know. We'll I know, find right? We'll find out if people listen to these episodes. I got to chat with you guys last weekend for your podcast. Which is going out this weekend. Awesome. Yeah. So it'll be, so that means that it will have already been out when this podcast comes out on Thursday. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, obviously we can talk forever. So it's probably a good thing that we have a hard stop, but I just appreciate your guys' time and your knowledge. And I would love to hear from listeners. I mean, this is the first time I've had two other people on the podcast. So curious to know about that format, but just yeah, I can geek out with you guys all the time. I know. So. All day, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah, thanks so much yeah. for having us, Chris. This is a really fun conversation. Oh, feel, you're so welcome. Like yeah, we appreciate it. It's always a blast. Yeah. Absolutely, you guys. Thanks so much. And I will catch up with you soon. Thanks again. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. 
again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.